Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to this special live edition of the Seneca Podcast, coming to you today from one of my favorite cities in the world, Chengdu in Sichuan Province. Let's hear you folks make a little noise. All right, all right, all right. The Seneca Podcast is produced in partnership with Sup China, which is the best way to stay on top of the latest news from China in just a few minutes a day. We are just days away from a radically new website design, which we think you're all going to love. We offer uncensored reporting and commentary on everything from media policy to the Me Too movement, from Xinjiang to the South China Sea. We are sure you'll agree it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and I'm here at a conference put on here in Chengdu by our friends and partners, Caixin, China's leading authority on business and finance. It's called Talking China's Economy, 2019 Forecasts and Strategies, and my good friend Li Xin, who is Managing Director of Caixin Global and Vice President of Caixin Media, has invited me here to do a live show. Our topic today is on Chinese investment in regions besides the United States. We all have heard an awful lot in the last couple of years about surging Chinese investment in the U.S. from you know some of the, the larger private sector firms in China. Uh, think of the gray rhinos like uh, like HNA and and Anbang. I, I think that many people are aware that for a whole host of reasons, originating both in Beijing and in Washington, there's been a substantial decline though in very recently since 2016, really, in investment in the U.S. So today we're going to look at how the horizons have really broadened for Chinese investors, what caused this broadening, and and where investors are now putting their money, both in terms of geographies and in terms of sectors. Uh, With me here to discuss this topic in its myriad dimensions are two terrific guests. First up, we have Professor He Fan, who is professor at the Anti-College of of Economics and Management at Shanghai Jiao Tun University and Chief Economist of Entropy Capital. Professor Hill, welcome to Seneca. Thank you. Uh, we're also joined by an old friend of mine, Michael Anti, uh, CEO of Caixin Globus, otherwise known as Zhao Jing. I don't think anyone calls you that. It's Michael <laughs> Anti. So we have Anti and Anti both <laughs> represented here. It'll be <laughs> So when I met Michael 15 years ago or so, he was uh, reporting for the New York Times, getting into all sorts of mischief. Uh, we're going to do another show with him at some point talking about how his views on a lot of things related to technology and censorship, things Good like idea. that, have, have changed. Uh, but uh, for now, we're, we're focusing on what he's doing now, uh, which, you know, he's, he's doing great work with Caixin, tracking China's economic activity all around the world in over 90 cities as CEO of Caixin Globus. Michael, welcome to Seneca. Thank you. Uh, Michael, let's start with you, and, and let's try to maybe frame this issue first more broadly. In, in, in terms, not just in terms of just the, the vicissitudes of, of regulation and, and current trade tensions between the U.S. and China, um, you've suggested that from China's perspective, globalization used to mean really not much more than 
Americanization, uh, the, the nation that really loomed the largest uh, in Chinese thinking about the world beyond China's borders was, of course, the United States. I, I was thinking about this and how, how you know, how much of the time that I lived in China, it was really the case that when you said why you, you, you meant English. When you said, like, was that that meant I'm going to study in America. And like, when, when you said a in or as we now call now Weigorer, uh, you think immediately of an American for some reason. Yeah, I think from very small the story to tell you how important the people in China thought the Sino-American relationship is the sole important relationship of the foreign diplomacy. Is from I think it's starting from the 1990s, right? Last year, I I I was in the middle school, I think. And suddenly, our English book, English book is the same, was the same, but the pronunciation changed, changed from British English to American English. So that's the reason when I speak English, I'm a mixture with the, the Chinese English, British English, and American English. And, and because uh, that, that was the year in the 1990s, all the Chinese elite think, if, if we want to modernize the China, there's only one example and one teacher in the whole world. So the best thing, whatever the conservative in China said, the best way for China is follow the United States. And also in the 1990s, the end of the 1990s, Professor Shi Hong had a very good uh, word to frame that. He said, we should bandwagon the United States. It's just like bandwagon that. So we, everything, everything Americans do, we do that. So we can. So it's the coupling stages of the China and the U.S. Well, let's talk a little bit more about this idea of Shi Hong. So, who is Shi Hong? He is the director of the American Studies Program mm. at uh, at Renmin Daxia, and he's one of the most famous Chinese American watchers. And and when he talked about bandwagoning, he was really talking about sort of you know getting with the United States, on, uh, getting behind the United States, and a lot of the things in the WTO. But he's moved away from that, right? Yeah, he's changed this recently changed his idea because. Uh, uh, you, you cannot, if you, it's a long far for, for away from the number two, okay, you can bandwagon, and Americans accept you, but now you are not only number two, you are the number two has the capacity to move to number one. So all, all, all someone think, right? So that will make the bandwagon like uh, a very bad scenario. I think uh, Americans starting to say, no, I don't want you bandwagon me. This is sort of a, an economic version of the move away from Taoguang Yanghui, right? The, the, the old hide and bide maxim of, of the Yeah, the, po the point is not even you don't want to hide. If you want to still want to hide, but there is no way to hide. You, the GDP numbers and also the tech uh, in sectors, the private sectors, every number to show you're already number two in the many, many figures. So you still want to say, I'm a, you know, uh, uh, well, I'm a developed country. A developing country, I think nobody even think about that. So that's the way China still want to bandwagon, but now it's the U.S. say no. You, you, I don't want you. Bandwagon. We don't want you on our bandwagon. Yeah. <laughs> so okay, not exactly their own choice then. Uh, I, I'm I'm curious though, uh, Dr. Hufa, mm -hmm. there's. Uh, are there numbers to support this idea that investment is declining in the United States and that it is increasing in other geographies around the world? And do you have some some sort of back of the envelope numbers that you might be able to give us? 
Actually, I think uh, they're still more or less the same. Uh, we have talked about the uh, declining of uh, American investment in China, but that happened a long time ago. Uh, so Americans' investment in China has reached it, uh, its peak uh, in year 2000 uh, and 2002. So right after China joined the WTO. And then after that, you can see uh, Americans' investment in China gradually decline. Uh, in year 2006, it dropped to somewhere between uh, 2 billion to 3 billion US dollar, and uh, then remained stable. Uh, so approximately uh, uh, American investment uh, uh, accounts for uh, 2% of China's FDI. But then at the same time, uh, we saw uh, a rapid increase of China's investment in the United States, especially after the global financial crisis. So recently, the number, uh, I think in 2017, if my memory is correct, uh, is uh, above uh, 6 billion US dollar right. and accounts for 4% of China's outbound uh, FDI. And I haven't seen, uh, even we're talking about, you know, China is investing in other part of the world, the road and about uh, countries, uh, but I haven't seen a dramatic uh, 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 decline of China's investment in the United States. And uh, if you look at the number, actually, uh, I think we tend to uh, overestimate the importance of bilateral investment mm. because uh, the uh, link of this uh, two largest economy is mainly through trade right. and also production network and uh, supply chain which embodied in international trade. So trade is more important than investment. Okay, but uh, today we are focusing on investment. So maybe we can go uh, back and look at that year 2016, uh, which was sort of uh, a heyday, though in, in a lot of ways very perverse, for the sort of high water mark of Chinese investment in the United States, where we saw companies like I said, HNA, Anbang, mm -hmm. uh, Foson, uh, and of course, uh, Wanda, mm -hmm. investing very, very heavily, making a lot of M&A deals in the United States that seemed to be all over the map. There was no apparent logic to them. What was going on? I think a lot of people were, were talking about this, mainly in terms of just wanting to move assets out of, of China. Was, was that, is that the best way to understand this? Uh, that's part of the reason. So if you uh, have a breakdown of China's uh, investment in the United States, and then you see the largest component is real estate. Real, asset, real and, estate. Yeah. And then followed by financial institutions and then transportation equipment. So it's not like uh, some uh, uh, media has told us that China is buying high-tech in the United States. So it's mainly Chinese people is more interested in buying house in the United States. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, well, you can say some of the uh, outbound investment uh, at that time is uh, they try to, especially some private companies, they try to move their money uh, abroad. And then uh, recently, the state administration of a foreign uh, exchange, uh, which safe, is yeah. Yeah, safe, which is responsible for capital control, and they have more and more uh, strict policy. So I think that has uh, uh, been uh, reduced uh, quite a lot, this trend. Was it also just because of the I mean, there were a lot of people who, who pointed to the behavior of these, uh, these companies. Mm -hmm. 
and they were calling them gray rhinos, that they were sort of uh, an obvious massive risk, of a very big threat, that mm-hmm. they were highly leveraged. They were making these, these, these purchases uh, that were not particularly economically sound, uh, and that the reason wasn't so much the crackdown wasn't because of this fear of capital flight, mm-hmm. but because of the irresponsible behavior of these companies. Uh, uh, two uh, reasons. One is because, uh, you know, for uh, SAFE, they really are concerned about the capital flight because uh, well, especially that's their purview, right? That's yeah, and right. especially you know after uh, in uh, the year 2015, we uh, in August uh, 11th, uh, 2015, we have a uh, uh, reform of uh, RMB exchange rate. Right. So the purpose is to uh, further liberalize uh, uh, RMB exchange rate. But then the, they are doing the right thing. But then uh, they 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 choose uh, wrong timing. So in the first half of 2015, there is a stock market crash. And then, uh, uh, you know, there is panic in the market. So people, investors tend to, uh, to uh, you know, think uh, every news is bad news. <laughs> so after this uh, reform, there is a very rampant capital flight. So that's the reason why SAFE uh, tightened the capital control. And also there is another government agency who is responsible for uh, Chinese companies uh, outbound investment, especially state-owned enterprises, and they learn. That. Yeah, they learn from their experience that because lack of experience, a lot of uh, Chinese company, and when they investing in uh, the outside uh, in the overseas market, and they are losing money. So they are also becoming more and more conservative since then. So between safe and safe sack, they were there was yeah, yeah, yeah. There was another factor though that was on the the, the Washington side, mm-hmm. and that was that beginning really in 2017, mm-hmm. we started to see much stricter CFIUS rules mm-hmm. being applied, much more scrutiny, yeah. and this may not have hit companies like Anbang or, or mm-hmm. whatever. Uh, but it did. It certainly did affect some of the technology companies and especially the energy companies. Yeah. Uh, so a couple of the high-profile ones, of course, were the effort by uh, Alibaba's company yeah. uh, to acquire Western Union mm-hmm. uh, for for you know uh, remittances, basically. Yeah. And the other, of course, were, was a couple actually of pretty high-profile LNG app, uh, acquisitions that were attempted by Chinese energy interests. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michael, maybe you can talk about uh, what th- was, was driving that as well. Our team is monitoring every day the Chinese investment uh, cases uh, overseas. But we recently, uh, recent uh, one year or two, uh, one and a half year, we recorded many, many denials from the, the states and from other, um, you know, Australia or other you know, Anglo-Saxon countries, right? right. So, and. Um, Actually, Chinese uh, Chinese uh, companies has the two challenges to put the investment. I always say, first is the government. Government don't want your IMB investment to go out, so you you cannot do that. Otherwise, all you have the permission of the government. But in terms of many many the Chinese internet company, they have the U.S. dollar funds. Right. So that that's the reason. After Anbang, you see the major stage gave to the internet company because they have the US dollar uh, in Hong Kong, in, not all in Silicon Valley, not necessarily in Beijing. So that kind of money is not really controlled by Chinese government. So they can invest whatever they want. But then they fear, they, they are meeting the second challenge. 
is the American government. We call CFIS, right? CFIS now almost blocking, I would say, 90% of the Chinese tech investment in the United States. Sometimes even gay app, right? The gay dating app. Right, Grinder. Grinder. Right. So why Grinder is a threat to the American? Well, I, I can I can actually offer a couple of reasons. I mean, wouldn't you think that that would be a very very easy way to be able to blackmail people? I mean, if you had. But actually, I mean, it's, it's that the, one actually does make some sense to me. Yeah, maybe. But but uh, we see the kind of the blocking to the um, um, tech tech company. They even they have a U.S. dollar investment overseas, but still they can't put the money to buy the especially American assets. So then they starting to turn to other countries, for example, uh, Europe or Japan. Yeah, so we've been talking mainly about the reasons why uh, maybe investment in the United States isn't looking so promising these days. So let's, let's shift and now talk a little bit more about uh, where these, where people are going instead. And, and you know, we're hearing all this talk about decoupling when it comes to the United States, um, steering away from the United States and toward other directions. Um, Michael, um, we were talking earlier, and you said that you see emigration trends yeah. out of China as a proxy, really, for where the money is going to be going, perhaps. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? Where are people now moving, if not to the United States anymore? And maybe, Khalfan, you can also talk about what you've observed about that. Yeah. I, the Chinese uh, people um, is a very strange nation that not individually <laughs> invest like a pioneer to invest in one place. They like people together, right? So for example, if you, your fellow villager, you know, have an investment in like uh, Africa, Kenya, when you, you know, settle down, you ask your friend in your countryside, like come back to that together with you. Because that kind of thing, because China is very, very newcomer of our globalization. Britain, United States, and France have already like 100 years experience how to deal with the globalization. They, they have a, a lot of the facility to make it, make it through. For example, law, right? Rule of law system. And uh, you have very good lawyer and a tax and uh, even the security firm. But also like uh, you are handle the PR and also the environment issues, political issues. But China is really newcomer. They only trust their own, their fellow guys, fellow Chinese. So, like uh, that's the reason we have like all the evil people go to one country in Africa, then all the villagers go to that country. So, like uh, even become like a king of that small country, a small tribe. So that that's to show the different pattern of Chinese. So if we see the change of Chinese immigration, you can predict the investment going. I think because the decoupling of the United States, now immigrate to the United States is almost a you know, mission impossible. Like EB-5 is like is it, 10 is years because, waiting. Because yeah, EB-5 visas now, right? It's like e 10 years waiting. Yeah. Right, which so, is bad news for the Kushner family and their, <laughs> their business. Right? So I think we see the trend, they move mostly likely to the southern, like southern Europe, like Greece. Southern Europe? Yeah, like Greece, Spain. And also, because that Europe, part of Europe is open up to Chinese investment. But they starting from buy houses. This is a very funny thing. You, you're starting by houses. Then you send kids there. We in, improve, want, you want to improve your kids' life, you have investment there. So that's the Chinese community were surviving and, and growing in that society. 
That's the trend, but we do see the trend. That's the one thing, is the Southern Europe. Second thing, I think, is Japan. Hmm. Yeah, I've been seeing a lot of houses in Japan. Japan. Wow, that's that's fascinating. Are you seeing similar trends? Well, two two comments, one comment on this uh, immigration. I I, I think we can find this link between uh, immigration and investment, but then uh, it will be very difficult to use this as a proxy to predict that where Chinese money will go because Chinese people are everywhere. Uh, I have traveled more than 50 uh, countries. There's only one country I cannot find uh, many Chinese people there. It's Cuba. <laughs> because it's planned economy <laughs> and... Uh, We've had enough of socialism. Planned economy and the Chinese people are not allowed to do business there. Oh, and then in, in, in Africa and in Middle East and in, in, in uh, Central Asia, everywhere, the very backwater area, and you can see Chinese people are doing business there. So um, uh, this is my first comment. And the second comment I have to disagree with, uh, Auntie, uh, people are talking about the decoupling uh, of China and the United States. And for me, it's very difficult to imagine the decoupling of the two largest economy in the world. Uh, we heard about uh, trade war and the trade negotiation. But um, to be frank, I think people in Washington DC and Beijing tended to overestimate their influence. And people in Chengdu are much better. Uh, so if you look at the trade uh, volume, um, United States is still the largest partner with China. So before 2006, uh, before the global financial crisis, uh, American is always the largest market for China's export. And then after the global financial crisis, because of the recession in uh, United States, and then Europe become the largest trade partner. But then after 2015, with the recovery of American economy, and we saw that United States has coming back and dominate uh, China's export and becoming the number one destination for China's export again. So, and this, uh, I think, is all uh, uh, determined by all the economic fundamentals. If uh, Americans' economic growth is stronger, and then the American people will buy more, and then they will buy more Chinese uh, products. That's simple. Uh, the rising tide will raise all the boats. So just uh, uh, that's just what happened. Yeah, I think we're talking about two things here. We're talking about the actual possibility of, of genuine decoupling, which I agree with you is mm-hmm. actually remote and, and not terribly plausible. The other, though, is, is the perception of an intention to decouple and a hostility that it generates, which, is, you know, which will scare away money. Uh, and we are seeing that coming out of D.C. It's interesting, though. I, I would agree with you. Uh, that it is not as widespread as, as one thinks. You hear an awful lot of it in the Beltway. but Well, I have to add that economic uh, is more important than political uh, factors. I'm not saying that China will have the trade surplus forever. And down the track, we'll see uh, a dramatic change. And probably uh, in the future, China's uh, current account surplus will disappear. But that's because of economic fundamentals, because saving rate in China is now declining and consumption is increasing. And I think that's the most important uh, thing for global economy. Because imagine in the past that China is the main supplier of capital in the international market. And in the future, imagine China, a large country, started to borrow money 
from other country in the international market. Not impossible. What would be the impact yeah. for the global market? So that's what we should really uh, watch uh, very carefully. When I started, I, I was talking about how decoupling, though, um, the, the perception of it is very real. And in one one area, I think it, it, it's pretty clear, the U.S. has been pressuring a lot of other countries to resist allowing the Chinese telecom giant Huawei to either uh, build core networks in those countries or even even to just sort of participate in its telecoms markets. It's been trying to corral the, the so-called like-minded countries, not just the five eyes of the English-speaking uh, countries, you know, New Zealand and Australia, Canada, the United States, and so forth, uh, but really to, to, you know, get all of the West on board uh, to get behind American export controls on other aspects of our technology policies. Um, Michael, you, you and I, we, we talked about the possibility that there might be a kind of, we might have a kind of Huawei index uh, where... Uh, we look at a country's receptivity to Huawei and its participation in its market and that country's attractiveness to Chinese emigration and to Chinese investment. Have you thought more about this in the time since we spoke a couple of weeks ago? Yeah, I, I, I think that I'm not, a, I'm not a Huawei lover. I'm a Xiaomi fan, so <laughs> to make clear, very clear. But you can see very clear things. The uh, Western government, they have a different ideas about how to handle Huawei. Expelling Europe, Euro think it it is should be case by case. If the some bad thing happened, we will rule out, we will rule. But we cannot do pre dump, you know, pre attack this kind of thing. So they have different policy. But uh, we also can see when the Chinese investment tend to you know, invest, they also think about what Huawei's acceptance in that country. If Huawei cannot accept in that country, it's also that government also will have another give them the challenge to the Chinese uh, tech company because now I just I mentioned Chinese only can use U.S. dollar without the Chinese government in your control to invest overseas. That's the convenient thing. But the major challenge to this kind of investment to the overseas is that country's government. It's not Chinese government. So it's interesting. Yeah, I think that would be a really good thing for a graduate student to undertake a study of. Maybe, Hovan, you have uh, some student who's looking for a good dissertation topic, and he could look at the correlation between Huawei receptivity. Well, that's a good topic. I Actually, I interviewed Huawei last month, and uh, they are quite confused. And they spend quite a lot of time explaining to uh, foreigners that Huawei is not a state-owned enterprise. Uh, and then they are confused because they have difficulty to convince people. Uh, they said that they have tried their best. Uh, they released uh, quite a lot of uh, material, even their financial record, but it doesn't uh, uh, help. So it shows that the people will not believe what they see. People will believe what they believe. Right. And I think uh, uh, this, I, I, I talked with many of my foreign uh, friends. I think ownership doesn't matter. So whether it's a state-owned enterprises or private company doesn't matter. So what matters is market structure. Uh, because if it's, a monop uh, if it's a competitive market, for example, uh, if it's uh, 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 a state-owned enterprises producing color TV, and there's nothing you should concern about. The, this state-owned enterprises, the behavior of this state-owned enterprises will be exactly the same as a private company. Otherwise, right. it cannot survive. 
But if it's a monopolistic market, whether it's a state-owned enterprises or a private company, it should be a concern because it probably will be a main uh, barrier for fair competition. So market structure is more important than ownership. Yeah, I think that's totally true. I mean, the, the other thing is, uh, it might be a privately owned company, it might be an employee owned company, as people suggest, mm. but the fact is that it has had ac access to boundless credit lines, mm -hmm. basically from the China Development Bank and from the Exim Bank. The new phenomenon in China is you, 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 you have difficulty to find a pure state-owned enterprises or a pure private right. company. It's a, it's a sort of mixed economy. So that's a new phenomenon. We, we, we still, uh, uh, it will take some time for us to understand uh, what it implies. Uh, staying with you, Hofan, so speaking of state-owned versus uh, private sector enterprises, mm -hmm. who is doing the overseas investment in these areas outside of the United States? Are we seeing that it's uh, Chinese sovereign funds or state SOEs or is it uh, big private technology companies along the lines of Tencent and, and Alibaba? Well, regarding uh, China's investment in the United States, definitely is safe as the central bank because we have accumulated a huge amount of foreign exchange reserve. That's right. And they are using the money to buy T-bills. But then uh, in other uh, foreign markets, for example, like in Africa and Southeast Asia, my understanding is private company discovered those new market first and then followed by some of the uh, state-owned enterprises. So private company, like businessmen in Wenzhou and Yiwu, they, <laughs> always, they always move faster than yeah, state-owned the enterprises. They are, yeah, they are the pioneers. The Wenzhou index. <laughs> the Wenzhou index, yeah, and uh, Huawei index. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Michael, uh, give us some examples of some of the, the, the overseas investments that are, are being pursued right now in countries outside of the United States. Again, we keep coming back to America. But let's let's try to stay away from it for a little. Yeah, bit. I, I think you uh, outside the, uh, the United States, you can see many many you know different kind of investment in in that. For example, Tencent, or uh, you can see another of the investment in the like in the game, right, sure. in the Europe game, and also, not Europe, because of the, the, the new uh, Privacy data laws, law, right, so GPR, I think it's not, uh, but in the Middle, Middle East, right, so you right. can see the investment in the Middle East, but also like uh, in um, Alibaba, the investment in, in Africa. Right. Uh, Jack Ma has a very, very big you know, the, ex the performance in, Ali in Africa, in Kenya. Yeah. And but also in the, in, they try very much to, let Alipay to dominate the South Asia market. So this really one. South uh, Asia or Southeast Asia? South Southeast Southeast ASEAN countries. Yeah, ASEAN countries. That's right. So and also you can see the you know Shandong Rui the 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 clothing factory. They buy many many Italy and uh, the French the branding. Huh. Yeah. So you can see many many things. Not really regular, you can see in the you know in recent report in, in a previous report. But China is try very much to to pursue like the balanced you know uh, globalization because if we say globalization before it's only the China U.S. relationship, right? But now the globalization for China after this kind of decoupling, all the, the trend of decoupling, China now starting to pursue the real globalization. 
balanced globalization. We cannot say it's the non-American globalization. I say balanced globalization. Sure. I mean, I think that when, when a lot of people think about Chinese investment outside of the United States, uh, they, they all think immediately of the Belt and Road Initiative uh, because of the hype. I think that people imagine that there has been investment activity commensurate with that level of hype. Uh, but when I look at the data, when I've looked at the data so far, it does not appear to be the case. It doesn't look like there's actually a lot of money uh, going into Belt and Road projects, uh, that they may be spending more money on Big Fora, like the, the second Belt and Road Forum, which is about to, to start in Beijing. Uh, so can you, can you talk about that? Uh, if these Belt and Road investments aren't as substantial as we imagine, uh, why not? Where are the big investments uh, within the Belt and Road? What, what should we be, how should we understand this? I, I think uh, maybe Hofan first. Yeah, okay, if you compare uh, what uh, President Xi Jinping uh, said five years ago and what he uh, he said at uh, this year's forum, and you see uh, the uh, difference because this uh, road and about uh, policy keeps uh, evolving. Uh, uh, at the early stage, uh, some people are talking about uh, because we have uh, overcapacity, so we'll move some of the capacity to other uh, developing countries. And now they figure out that it's more complicated. It depends on whether you have all the supporting system uh, to absorb your capacity. So I think now China has a more uh, shrewd view on uh, how to invest uh, in the road and about countries. And this, uh, we learned this experience uh, 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 by paying a huge uh, cost. Uh, so uh, now they are uh, uh, emphasize more on not only the investment in the infrastructure, but also how to uh, cooperate with other country and also international organization. And then, uh, because road and about policy is still there is in the constitution of the party so we cannot change the uh, policy but then uh, there is the uh, the uh, the uh, adjustment of this policy so i think a good example is uh, aiib asian infrastructure uh, investment, investment bank yeah. this is not directly linked with road and about initiative but then if you look at the way that china is working uh, with aiib China is trying its best to make AIIB as an international organization. So very it doesn't, standards, it, it doesn't very, matter that AIB will invest massively, but what it matters is it will showcase that China can also help to, you know, to establish a new international institution. Well, it can't yeah. invest massively. It just simply doesn't have that much under management right now. And where have its actual investments gone? Into a non-Belt and Road country, actually. It's all gone into India, which is yeah, it's very mostly interesting. To the India. Michael, you wanted to add something? Yeah, I think the, in terms of the private sector, the, the, the local companies we want to, uh, in, they think about the Belt and Road, they, and the investment overseas, they have the calculation. First, they want to have money. So, they want to own money, so they want to find uh, investment overseas which can get money, and also that, con that kind of country have the market and the rule of law. You can get the money back, right? You cannot invest in North Korea, right? right. But also, you also need the local government to give you permission 
to send the money or people outside. So you should match the Batten Road rule. So that's the reason even you see the data, Chinese investment more to the sometime tradition, you know, countries, not really Belt and Road country, but still Chinese companies really want to apply the Belt and Road as a kind of excuse to invest, invest overseas because that's very legal for them, invest overseas, uh, right, given the covered, condition right. of the, the capital control. So, so as China scours the world for good investment opportunities, it's, it's naturally going to face certain rivalries with countries that have traditionally regarded particular geographies as, as their own backyards. So you have France, for example, in Africa. You have Germany in Eastern Europe. It's been a very, very big investor, especially since 1991 uh, in Eastern Europe. And of course, you have Russia and to an extent Korea and Japan in Central Asia. Uh, how is China faring in, in investment in these areas as a newcomer, as somebody who maybe isn't as familiar with the rules of the road, with, with local habits and customs. How is China faring, and, and do you find that it's learning quickly? Well, I think for those countries, and it will be a good news uh, to have China as a newcomer, uh, because then they can uh, you know, use China to negotiate uh, with other countries. And then for China, a Chinese uh, investor, um, I think the learning curve is very uh, steep. Yes. Uh, and one advantage uh, Chinese investor has is we uh, have a better understanding of uh, what a de developing country looks like. Mm -hmm. So actually, we are looking for another China in early 1980s. Right. So in early 1980s, when the foreign investor coming to China and what they, they, they will, what they will saw, uh, there's no infrastructure, uh, very poor people, and no purchasing power. And the first uh, batch of foreign investor coming to China trying to sell uh, pants to Chinese people, and then they figure out that Chinese people are so poor they cannot buy pants. <laughs> and then they hire Chinese people to produce pants and clothes. So uh, I think that, uh, maybe this is the uh, uh, advantage of a Chinese investor. So they are more practical and then uh, they can, uh, it depends on uh, which country they are investing. Uh, probably for those countries who uh, have uh, rich resources and then uh, have more uh, large pool of labor and then uh, relatively better education and then uh, they have the more or less the same system as China and, uh, and chi Chinese investor will have higher possibility to uh, uh, success. For example, like uh, uh, South Africa is one of the favorite uh, places for Chinese investors, and also Southeast Asia. Right. Vietnam uh, is one very good example. So we understand Vietnam much better than many foreigners, Westerners. Yeah, understandably, that's, that's true. I mean, China also, they don't come in with colonial legacy, the, the historical baggage. Yeah, that's, that's, that's another uh, advantage. They might not be familiar with the regulatory landscape. They might not be particularly cosmopolitan in their outlook. But yeah, they have that going for them. And they do, as you were, you were suggesting, the same thing that was done in China in the late 70s and the early 80s, mm -hmm, which is mm -hmm. these infrastructure for resources deals, yeah. right? very much like Japan did in China. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's been their strategy in Africa. That's argued very forcefully by Deborah Brodigam in mm -hmm. one of, of her books. books. It's uh, quite good. Um, let's, let's move back really quickly now to, 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 to 
other sectors besides technology. We, we're all aware of a lot of the, the technology-focused investments. Um, there's got to be a lot of go, uh, going on in energy. I mean, we've seen China, as I said, blocked from some LNG deals in the U.S. Uh, what are China's big energy plays? One, that you mentioned earlier um, that China is not going to invest in North Korea. Well, it might, might not be able to invest in Iran soon either because Secretary Pompeo, as we saw the other day, he just basically announced that the United States was not going to tolerate any uh, countries buying oil from Iran with a very, very few exceptions. Those exceptions do not notably include China. Uh, China is, you know, has imported up to 17% of its imported oil from, from Iran in years past. What, what, what does this foreclose investment opportunities in that part? I think that challenge is not only to China, but also to the whole Europe. Europe has shared the same idea with Russia, Russia and China with only Iran issues. Because you cannot just, American dominating all the trade and the Iran, um, the, now the American policy to Iran is not really uh, agreed by the European and uh, China. But I think you, I, I don't think you know, I don't think there will be a like Iranian, new Iranian war there. So I would think people will go through that. I don't, we don't know the result, but I just guess. If really like there is, we cannot get the oil from, from Iran and also the trade with Iran will be stopped. Stop. I think it will be very, um, it's a very good, it's a very bad challenge to the um, Chinese. Mm. Uh, I think for a, a last topic here before we wind up, uh, I want to talk a little bit about China's immediate neighborhood uh, in Northeast Asia, specifically Japan, and uh, maybe also we talk about South Korea a bit. Um, as as I've said many times on this show, just sort of you know patting myself on the back, I, I remember thinking uh, more than a year ago we should expect to see a warming between uh, Xi Jinping and Shinzo Abe uh, because of what was happening uh, with. Trump and, and steel and aluminum tariffs, uh, with uh, Beijing and, and Tokyo both interested in finding other potential trade partners. When uh, Zhou Yaoba, uh, September 18th, the anniversary of the Mukden incident uh, in 1931, which, which marked the beginning of Japanese aggression in, in what was then Manchuria, uh, when that anniversary passed in China, almost completely unremarked on in Chinese media, I suddenly said, aha, I see what's happening here. And I, I, it turns out I, I was right. Uh, we're seeing very interesting things happening right now between China and Japan. Very little rancor, less than I've seen in any year since 2012. So uh, is there commensurate investment now going on? Japan is a very closed society. It's very closed off, I know, to a lot of foreign investment. But um, is Japan becoming a growing destination he said for emigration, Michael, so in, uh, in, in accordance with your theory, are we going to see uh, investment there in something outside of the real estate sector? I, I think that uh, China and the, uh, China, Japan, the relationship is really dominated by the, Sino, the changing of the Sino-American relationship about decoupling. Uh, even my friend Hofan says it's not decoupling now, but I say it's a trend of decoupling. Um, Chinese are very pragmatic about everything, right? So. Even there is a trend we should should pr prepare very in the early stage. Like uh, when we heard the news about China and the U.S. were de decoupling for the trade war thing, and for most of the other nations will be 
like the first five stages of the grave, right? The first deny, then anger, then the last stage is the acceptance. <laughs> but for the Chinese, it's different. It's like first, it deny, of course, we don't trust China-US will be decoupling. But as long as you know that, they accept very quickly, almost like stage two or stage I think we're four. in the stage of bargaining right now. Yeah, <laughs> but, but bargaining will be the, the stage five. That means I accept first the bargaining. During the bargaining, this calculation, the Chinese calculate if China, in the future, if the American want to decoupling, the vacuum, what, what kind of thing will fill the vacuum? So you, you definitely will go to Europe, Japan, Korean, and ASEAN countries. That's the reason, the trigger, the rising of the China-Japan relationship. Okay, Hufan. I think you? if we uh, put ourselves in Japan's shoes, and then we can understand, uh, you know, it's also a change of the attitude from Japan's side toward China. Uh, because uh, if you are uh, Japan and then you feel reluctant to follow China, uh, but then uh, you feel more uh, uh, frustrated whether you should follow United States or not. Right. Uh, so the better way is to diversify your portfolio. So I think this uh, improvement of the bilateral relationship between China and uh, Japan as a uh, strategy to diversify their portfolio uh, to avoid uh, the potential risk. And uh, whether there will be still a larger potential to increase either investment or trade between China and uh, Japan, I doubt. Uh, because now if you see uh, uh, the trade volume and uh, Japan accounts for less than 6% of China's export and for South Korea, something like 4.4%. But then uh, uh, underneath this uh, number is a uh, regional production network which already existed. Right, so, so supply chain. Yeah, right. the supply chain and then the Japanese investment in mainland China, South Korea. Uh, company uh, operating in, 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 in China. So it's already uh, linked with each other. I think uh, 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 there is no place uh, that China can, you know, uh, can, can close the nap if there's really de uh, decoupling uh, uh, between China and the United States. But then uh, maybe uh, a new uh, area, uh, a new market in China will increase uh, their investment and the trade in the uh, near future. My guess is probably Southeast Asia. I, 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 I heard quite a lot of Chinese companies moving to Southeast Asia. Because, oh, it's absolutely happening. Yeah, yeah and because they have very uh, successful uh, business story in China. And then uh, imagine that the size of China. And then if you, if you can be success in China and then you move to other Southeast Asia, it's like you are moving from China to one province of China. <laughs> so, so that's the reason why uh, uh, they feel more comfortable and confident in those uh, markets. I think Vietnam has about the population of our home province, Henan, right? Mm -hmm. I see the different side. It's most, you can see the cell phone industry. Actually, cell phone industry, they're moving to two parts of the world. First, India. Second, is Africa. Why, uh, why Africa and India, not other countries? Because of the a single market. China is successful of the internet industry because so many people, 1.4 billion people speak uh, Mandarin, right? 
So if everyone uses the internet, so create one single ma single market internet market really create the revenue. They want they move to the best choice America, but America refuse you. The second choice will be India and uh, English speaking and French speaking Africa. So you can on that kind of parts of the you can find the single market with so many population in one internet. What That's, about Indonesia? But these in Muslim countries have not of a ban about you know it's not really the secular. So especially about financial rules is very well, different. India hardly India. is either, but <laughs> yeah. So I, that why Xiaomi and also the the Chinese the Chinese the Shenzhen company dominates the American Africa. Well, that's hardware. It's different. It's hardware. I mean, it's it is it's a different thing. Anyway, so I mean, I think that we'll, we'll we'll wind up with this this question, which is you, you mentioned this gap that that mm -hmm. uh, that you know in the the advent of actual pursuit of decoupling would would be there. Uh, you know, there's been an awful lot of hurt uh, that that China's experienced just in the last couple of years from the the trade war. Could China make up this gap with increases in outbound investment or increased exports to to the rest of the world? Uh, I mean, because. Look, I mean, the United States is a ferociously important market for China. It always has been. It has, uh, it nobody consumes like the American, right? Yeah, American is, there, is, is the best buyer in the whole world. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I'm part of that. My <laughs> my weekend trips to Costco, three fifty, four hundred dollars every goddamn. So trip. that's the reason people in China prepare for the worst scenario of the Sino-American relationship, but still people hope. We have no bad thing happened. We're still American buy Chinese goods. Well, let's hope that uh, Robert Lighthizer and company and Liu He come up with something uh, good. I think there are a lot of indications right now that uh, we're going to see some substant uh, a substantive agreement. Uh, most of the people who I'm talking to, these are former USTR people, are very, very optimistic about about where things are heading. I hope uh, that we all are too. Uh, Michael and Hofan, it's so great to speak to you, uh, and I hope that we can have both of you back again on the show soon. Uh, let's move to the recommendations segment of the show before we, we conclude, um, and I'll leave some time for audience questions at the end, although we won't be recording those. Um, Michael, why don't you start with recommendations? Yeah, I just I really love to um, TV, American TV series. I think they represent. <laughs> We're supposed to be talking about not America. Oh, yeah, no, it's okay. But I think first the thing is uh, billions. The oh yeah, new, yeah, yeah, yeah. Season, yeah. Billions, billions, but also yeah. like a good fight is about you know good fight. Oh, the good fight. Yeah, it's like the good wife. The the yeah. Oh good no, fight. I don't know that. One. I don't know that show. Yeah, you should watch. I think the. The billions, the new season of billions really represent the new scenario about, especially now, the present America. That means, uh, you know, Trump there's no America. good guy. There's oh, right. no good guy. <laughs> Even, you know, government <laughs> is bad guy. So that really is it's like uh, people just pissed off everything. Tired of the previous you know, scenario about good guy really be sacrificed and uh, bad by Bad, bad guy always wait. But now the new episode say everyone is bad. I think I'm also very sad when I watch the TV series. Why I watch this kind of TV series, I feel exciting. That means something in my mind also changed. I'm not good now. Oh, <laughs> but also good fight. I think it's almost like carnival of the liberal people. They really, you know, represent almost every news you heard from American um, um, you know, politics, uh, you can see they present 
in the TV series. Though I recommend oh, okay. you to watch. Yeah, sort of like Veep. No, <laughs> uh, Veep, Veep is too much away from the reality. Oh but no, I just love that show. The good fight is very like, reality based. Cannot recommend that show more highly. Uh, actually, uh, th- that should be one of my recommendations. I'll, I'll, I'll mention in a second. But okay, great. So Billions and the Good Fight. All right. Mm-hmm. Well, fine. What do you have to recommend for us? Uh, can I recommend my own book? We'll make an exception. Yeah, you will. You've been such a good guest. uh, Two uh, recommendations. One is my own book, my uh, new book. Uh, The Chinese title is Bian Liang. And I would translate it uh, into English as Momentum. So it's a sort of uh, a non-fiction documentation of what is happening in China. And this is um, the first book of my uh, 30 books. I, I will write one book uh, every year and in the coming 30 years to uh, wow to this uh, <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here from yeah so, so so this is my first uh, recommendation uh, so my second uh, I would like to uh, recommend a French book um, uh, the English title will be sort of uh, American uh, trap uh, it's a story uh, taught by a former manager of Alstom oh. uh, who was put in jail uh, and it's it is is similar, uh, like what is happening as the Huawei episode. And I can tell you that this will, this book will become a bestseller in China. So oh. it'll be interesting to see what Chinese reader, after reading the book, what will be there thinking what well, there somebody response. has to secure the rights for this book then quickly <laughs> and you know, if, that's his prediction is it's going to be a bestseller uh that that would be great okay i'll do two books then one just because we, we were talking about the good fights and i mentioned veep um i i read I managed two books on the plane on my 30-hour uh journey from north carolina to here in the last couple of days the first was uh it's called w- women first first woman uh, and it's a fake a memoir written by Selena Meyer, who is, of course, played by Julie Louis-Dreyfus on, on the show Veep. It's hysterical because it's, it's you know, recorded as an audio book. I, I listened to it in an audio book. And, uh, you know, she, she, she just does all these asides, like, you know, cursing her, her, her head off. Uh, and her, her aide, Gary, is, is in the booth with her, that obsequious toady. Uh, and it's just the funniest book. I, I cracked up. The other, uh, again, very light reading, uh, Trevor Noah reading his own book, uh, which is called uh, Born a Crime, about his childhood growing up in Soweto and other parts of South Africa. Uh, the guy is brilliant and just funny and insightful and deep and it's a, a fantastically interesting story highly recommend it born a crime uh by trevor noah who is of course the host of the daily show which is required viewing for any good american also <laughs> anyway thank you very much uh, once again for both of you and for all of you here let's let's hear it for our two f- fantastic guests michael anti and hofad The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn with editing help by Jason MacRonald. Special thanks this week to Li Xin and to all the good folks here at Caixin who made this episode possible. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at at SupChina News. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, the fantastic Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China New Voices, China Econ Talk, Africa and the new Middle Earth podcast on the culture industry in China. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.